0: visit the allingospel.com website. (laughs) But she's super comfortable. We're in Numbers 32 tonight. That's where we're going to pick up, right where we left off. And everyone who's here has been here before, so I don't really need to go through the spiel tonight. So we're going to pick up... uh, right there in Numbers 32, and I'm just going to start by reading. Uh, now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw that the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Dibbon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eleah, a shabam. That's my favorite. Nebo and Baon, the country, which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock and your servants have livestock. Therefore, they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. So after God has rescued Israel in Exodus one through nine, they prepare for a journey with God. in in chapters 10 through 26, there's a journey where they fail a lot. And at the end of that little journey, they figure out that God's got to fight their battles, that when they try things on their own, they kind of fail. When they let God lead the way, it kind of succeeds. Uh, And now this last section of the book of Numbers is the new generation preparing to go into the promised land or to live that life with God. So as we're in the final section and we're dealing with the new generation, I just want to break that section down a little bit more. Again, there's a progression here and each narrative and each story is for our learning and instruction uh, Hebrews uh, talks about. So in chapter 31, they go to war, their spiritual battle. In chapter 30, they have vows that they take or don't take. Vows that should come from a place of zealousness for the Lord. Lord, I love you so much, I want to do this. And how to handle those things. At the end of the day, maybe don't make those unless you're you feel very, very called to do it. Chapter 29 talks about devotion. That our call to be in the kingdom is simply to be devoted to the Lord. Uh, daily devotions, weekly Sabbath, monthly get-togethers, annual holidays, and that the Lord wants us to just live with devotion. We get two examples of Zeliphad's daughters in 27, they do a census. And then we have back in 25, we had Phineas, these examples of this new generation of young people that are just zealous for the Lord. They want purity. They want to get all the nasty stuff out. Um, And then in 31, of course, is this war. And at the end of the war, this, and if you're looking at this as a metaphor for our hearts, there's a spiritual battle going on. The bad stuff from the world gets purged and the good pure stuff gets kept and that we all kind of have this thing. So then we get to this passage where part of the tribe of Israel, part of our heart, just wants to stay put. And we don't want to go over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And they look around at all their stuff. So we're going to break that down. But as their hearts are devoted, zealous, they're, these are believers. And I think that as we're looking at the Christian church, and as we're looking at the walk of faith today, if this is our instruction thing, where this story comes in the journey is kind of right before they get into that place with the Lord that he wants us to be. And this is maybe the last major thing. So if at the beginning of the journey, we tend to complain too much, at the end of the journey, we tend to look at our cows too much right? And this is something that's really difficult to get into theologically. It's easy to take this out of context. So again, I want to just talk about that whole context of the book of numbers. We're at that end place where it's kind of a place of maturity. These are people that it's the purging has been done. The heart has been clarified. The nation of Israel is ready to go. Um, And then you've got this group of people who just don't want to go. So at the end of the day, it's not purity that's keeping them out. It's not a struggle with sin that's keeping them out. It's just a desire. It's their own will that's blocking their way. So Reuben and Gad are two of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's an odd thing in this passage. And it's it's one of those passages where you read that, and that seems like pretty innocuous. Like they're making a pretty reasonable call here. And that's part of, I think, how the Jewish people would teach this chapter. It's the reasonableness of it all that's the problem. It's not a faith-based decision that they're making and I'll kind of walk you through some of that. Um, Reuben, remember back in Genesis 49.3, was described as unstable water. Like Reuben's just not, there's no foundation with Reuben. And Reuben just kind of goes whichever way. And you'll notice um, in this passage, Reuben's listed first in chapter one, but it, or in verse one, and in verse two, it, already Gad's getting listed first. Almost like Reuben was the first in birth order, but really this is Gad's thing to stick in the land. And did you see how they flip the, the order of the names there? So uh, we have this new generation and we have two of the tribes that just say, we just want to stay. So um, Manasseh is not even listed. They're going to just jump on coattails at the end of the chapter. So the half tribe, half of the tribe of Manasseh is going to jump on with these two tribes, but they're not even mentioned right here. Um, the cities that are listed in verse 3 are all cities of the land they'd just taken in chapter 31. Uh, and in their favor, they do everything right. They go to Mo- they go directly to Moses. They don't stir up the camp. There isn't a bunch of complaining and griping. They go to the place they should go. They ask respectfully. Um, there's not really a rebellion here because they're looking. They're doing it within the authority of Moses. So it's not like they're rebelling against Moses. They're asking permission for this. Outside of their favor, this is a really odd thing, given that all the way back to Abraham, the promise was that land, not this land. The promise was the land God promised them, not the land that the world had left for them. Remember, they destroyed all the cities. So they weren't going to take this land. So they're going to go through this and they're not going to get the promised inheritance that they were, that they were offered by God. Because what they see in the world is good enough. And they'll just settle for that. And this is kind of throughout the rest of the Bible is going to be a, a negative story. That these are people that were that close to the promised land and then they just settled for what they had. And they didn't do the rest. So comparatively today, these are the churches that have everything right. They're doing it all good and they're not doing anything with it. These are the people like Steph and I for 20 years that went to church every Sunday, did everything right, but there was just no zeal for the Lord until we had to make kind of a a commitment or re-give ourselves to the the, the spiritual engagement with God that we wanted to have, right? And all of you are smarter than us because you're doing it much, much earlier in life. It's not good as a story. This is the difference between people who go to church and people who build church. Do you know what I mean? This is a complex thing, especially for people that are still wrestling with earlier chapters in the book of Numbers. So it's a tough chapter to get into. In, in verse one, there's a very great multitude, and this helps us break it down. What happens here is that they have stuff that lets them look at the world, which forms their identity, and that changes their will. Those four things, stuff, world, identity, will. And the first thing is the stuff. They have a great multitude of cows. The world's been good to them. They have prospered. They don't really need God. They've got everything they have need. So that, that idea of wealth, uh, you know, Jesus talked about it. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When we are fat and healthy and we're living on our, you know, the 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 products of our labor, it's awfully hard to have a need for God when we're in that position. When we let ourselves get really, really comfortable, it's very difficult. Not impossible, but difficult because they got camels through eyes of needles every single day in Jerusalem. It just was a pain in the butt. Right? So this stuff that we have, this spiritual heritage that they have, is trusting in what they can see versus trusting in what God's promised them and it's a fine line, and it's a nuanced difference between these things. It's a practical thing, and that's the thing that gets me. These folks are like, this is good land for livestock, and lo, we have livestock. I think the low must be King James. But that's kind of their logic, and it's a very worldly logic, but they're looking at what they have, not what they're promised. See the difference? Then in verse two, they saw the land, they start looking at the world. Why are they looking backwards when they should be looking to the to the West, they should be looking towards the promised land, but they're looking at where they've been too much. Um, My grandfather used to say, we don't miss what we don't see. And when you look at things with your eyes, your heart tends to follow. And that's the danger of choosing where you look. And there's been stuff in the book of Numbers when the the snakes were biting and they made the serpent to look up at the serpent. There's been a number of these passages that talk about where we put our eyes. All things are full of labor, Ecclesiastes 1.8. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing." When we put our attention on the world, we tend to have hearts that follow where our attention goes. Or as one of my pastors used to say, if I can just look at somebody's calendar and their checkbook, I can tell you what God they worship. Really easy to figure out, because you worship what you spend your time on, you worship what you spend your money on. And this is Again, this is a tough chapter because this is kind of at the end of the book of Numbers. This is one of the last great struggles of believers to get over this hurdle. It's a tough one. So they're supposed to be looking for heaven, even when they're in the promised land. And this is kind of a, when you receive the promises, you're supposed to still be looking for God, even when they cross over that river, but they're already stopping it right now. I'm going to give you a longer passage from Hebrews 11:9, 9, which re- references this chapter. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise in a foreign country, dwelling with tents, in tents with Isaac and Jacob, that's Abraham, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then Hebrews 11:13. I'm just skipping a couple verses. These all died in faith, not having the promises, these being the, the, is the first generation of Israelites here, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them, the promises of God, they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out of, they would have had the opportunity to return Egypt. But they they now desired a healthy, a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for He's prepared a city for them the place their eyes should have been is the promised land. So this is not a good thing that they're saying, I want to stay put here. What land do you see? What land do you look at? This is part of what God wants in our hearts. He wants our devotion. We've already done that chapter. He also wants us to have our eyes in the right place. He wants us to be thinking about what he has in store for our lives, not always dwelling on what we've done in our life. And you know, another way to say this is called sitting on your laurels. And laurels are things that the Romans would put on people's heads when they had just won a battle and they marched into town. These leafed wreaths that they'd put on their head, they were laurels. So they would have Romans that would get these laurels, but then you just spend your whole life celebrating those wonderful things that you've hung on your wall, instead of thinking of what's next. So this is a danger for them. So the third thing is then their identity gets wrapped up into it. So their eyes are on the world. They're looking at the world. And then in, in verse, and then the third thing is it says, your servants have livestock. Their identity is not in who they are in God. Their identity is in who they are as livestock herders. This is who we are, we're livestock owners. So instead of saying that they're children of God, they're parents of cows. And it's not a huge difference and it's not necessarily an evil thing to identify our vocations. But if we identify ourselves by our vocation instead of by who we are in God, that's a danger that comes to believers. And it's going to make it so we don't get into the promised land, because not because God's kicked us out or refused us entrance like He did the first generation because of rebellion, but just we don't get there because we don't decide to move and get there. So it's tough. And it's an easy thing to do. Adults in the room, even young working adults in the room, it is so easy to identify ourselves by our jobs. So what do you do? I'm a teacher, I'm an engineer. I do this, I do that. It's so easy to identify yourself by our job. For Samuel 16 verse seven said, for the Lord does not see a man uh, as a man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at his heart. Who we are is who our heart is and where our heart looks for and desires. So it's not what you do that matters. I keep livestock. It's who you are that matters but it's super practical. And that's the hard thing here. It's not morally wrong to say, I take care of cows or whatever your job is. That's not a bad thing. It's a heart thing that only you and God know the difference between. And again, these are people that it's not a purity issue that's keeping these people out of the Holy Land. So stuff, world identity, and then the very last sentence of that section, do not take us in. At the end of the day, their will has changed. They don't have a will to go into the Holy Land they don't want to, and God isn't going to make them. And we've seen that character of God all the way through the Bible so far. God doesn't force humanity to do things. If you don't want to serve God, fine, but then don't expect God to serve you. It goes two ways. So God doesn't, and, and this is one of those things, people struggle with that idea of how can God send people to hell. And so far, biblically speaking, we don't see that that's the case with God. God lets people go the direction they want to go. He doesn't send people to hell. He grabs people and takes them to heaven. And that's an essential theological difference in how this works. Uh, Proverbs 5.5, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of hell. It's our steps and our choices and our will that take us in that direction. If hell is the absence of God, we aren't sent there. We're already there before we meet God. And in the end life, at the end of times, God's not going to sustain somebody who doesn't want to be with him and doesn't want to be in the Holy Land. I have somebody who loves worship. All right, same pastor friend as the previous reference. And he would always say, I don't get it when people come in and they don't want to do worship. Like, what do you think's going to happen in heaven for all of eternity? Why wouldn't you want to be in that space? So that's practice for what we're doing for a very, very long time. And if you don't like to worship God in his presence, that's a major problem with your heart because there should be something there. Now we all worship different and that can happen in different ways, but you actually don't like to be with God, then you're probably struggling with what these people are struggling with. They don't really want to go and be with God in the middle of his promises. There's something a little wild about that. C.S. Lewis talked about Aslan the lion, he's a wild lion, right? He's not tame. So there's something a little dangerous about stepping forward in faith into the promises of God versus staying where it's nice and pastoral. And we know we can feed our sheep here. We don't know what God's going to do over there. And that's just a a, a safety kind of thing for us. And our steps will take hold of that because we choose and we direct those steps. I was just talking before we got going with Mike about how many believers there are. And it's almost, at some point you get like frustrated and whatever, but at some point you're just sad how many believers there are that just choose to not live their life in that presence of God and in the steps of God. And I think for my own heart, I struggle with that every single day. Am I going to live today for the Lord or I'm going to live the day for myself? And that's just a struggle we all have. And we look at these verses and these should teach us something about those and how the Lord handles it. Verse six says, And Moses said to the children of Gad and the children of Reuben, Gad goes first here again, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Notice how Moses, by the way, completely reframes the question. Um, And I think Moses is seeing things more accurately spiritually. He uses the phrase, while you sit here, uh, what looks good to those people is actually a kind of prison. And and later on, it's going to make them vulnerable too, because when you're on the east side of the Jordan, you're also the first people to get attacked from foreign powers. You're separated from the people of God. You're the first to get attacked. You're the first to get destroyed. And lo, the Reuben and Gadites will be the first to fall in Israel when it starts to be dismantled discouragement of the heart. Moses frames the abandonment of the people as a discouraging act. Uh, Dave Gusick frames it as complacency is contagious. And Moses sees this. You get one or two people that just settle and it tends to then make it okay for everybody else to settle too. It's a dangerous place to be because it makes sense in our flesh and in the way we are as humans. It makes sense to be safe. It doesn't seem morally wrong, but it's also not necessarily living the life that God's called for you to live. Uses the word discourage. Actually in the Hebrew, it use it's a double use of a word, and the word is new, N-U-W, and it says new new. You're super discouraging to people when you do that. If you don't want the promises of the Holy Land, you want to leave the team right when we're at the championship game, think what that does to the rest of the team. Think of the impact you're about to have. New, new. It's emphatic when it's used two times like that. And in fact, discourage in the English is kind of a gentle word. In the Hebrew, it means opposed to, to frustrate, to refuse, dissuade, or to make something of worth into nothing. To discourage. And when they leave the group like that, when they bail on the team, this is a major discouraging act, according to. Moses. The actions of a few people can cause lukewarm believers all over the place. Interesting here, every time Moses has had one of these situations, remember he goes off and he prays first. He doesn't pray on this one. Did you notice that? He's going to answer it right away. Why is that? And I would suggest it's because Moses doesn't have to go back and pray because all he has to do in this situation is remember what God has already said and know that God is consistent. God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And God's already spoken on this issue. I have an inheritance for you, and it's over here. So he doesn't have to go pray about it because he's got God's word to go off of. And that I think is encouraging for me a little bit because we have a lot more of God's word that we can go and read instead of hearing magic voices behind our ears, we can, we can read what God has already said and apply it to the vast majority of our life. Yet we still can go to God on things. where, like, okay, God, I'm thick and I've read your word. And I don't see where you say what to do about this. And God still answers us in mercy and in grace. And will talk to us in that kind of way. But God's past actions and word are actually things that Moses just applies this time. Does it with confidence? Cause he knows what God says on this issue. Um, stuff, world, identity, and now the will has changed. So Moses starts with the will and says, you want to just sit here? And then he unpacks it in reverse. Notice how he changes the identity. They're not cow hoarders. When Moses is talking, he says, you're brethren. You're not herders of cow. You're brothers and sisters to the body. You see what he does there? So he reframes their identity. Then he goes back to the world and he points them at the land right? Brothers, it's about the family. It's not about you. And then in verse seven, he says, going over into the land, he redirects their eyes. They're supposed to look forward. And he's telling them to do that. And now the stuff part is really verses eight through 13. He hits this stuff thing because that's where the guts of it are at. You see how this works? Stuff, world, identity, will. And Moses goes, look at your wills in the wrong place. Your identity's in the wrong place. You should be looking at a different world than the one you're looking at. And then verse eight, he unpacks the stuff. Thus your fathers did when I sent them away to Kadesh Barnea to see the land where they're looking. For when they went up to the hill, went up to the valley of Eshkel and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day. Again, he's remembering here. And he swore an oath saying, surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and above shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they have not wholly followed me. That's a dangerous place to be. When God calls you lukewarm, that's not a good place to be. So not wholly follow God is about the same as not following God at all. Verse 12, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, And Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. Moses uses the word evil here, and that's an offensive word to some people. But to not follow the Lord and to have faithlessness and to bring that back to the camp, to let your heart stir without following the Lord, that is what evil is. It's to take your heart, And have it go somewhere else instead of on the Lord. So for Moses, it's not what Moses thinks, and he doesn't really give his own opinion. He just repeats what God thinks in a similar situation. And this is how we're supposed to learn, that we can see people in the Bible that are in situations that are similar to ours, and we see how God reacts to it. And Moses just reminds them this is what God thinks. And basically, if I could paraphrase, he says, are you people nuts? Don't you realize this is what your parents did? And now you're going to do the same thing? You are crazy because we saw what God did last time and now you're going to do it again. And he reminds them what God did last time. You got this God who has saved you. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's renewed you. He's given you health again. He's given you peace. He's given you joy. He's liberated your heart as he's liberated Israel, the nation. And now you don't want to follow him in return? What are you, nuts? That's the question. So Moses's reaction, when you first read it, looks like a really out of proportion reaction to a reasonable request. Because through the eyes of the flesh, it is a reasonable request. These are good grazing lands and here's some sheep, let's put them together. Makes so so much sense. But Moses is looking at this through a very spiritual lens. And what he sees is disobedience. So they discouraged the heart is another phrase he said here. Um, You know, this is such a tough thing. Complacency is a discouragement to the heart. What happens with complacency is the years will go by and then you think, dang, I've done nothing for the kingdom in all these years. And then you have to keep testing that heart. And every year you stay complacent, the harder it is to get out of that spot and move again. So that's going to be something that they have to wholly follow the Lord. He brings up Caleb and Joshua What separated them from the rest of them is they were willing to speak out and see what God wanted them to see versus seeing the obvious things that the world had in front of them. That was the only difference between Caleb and Joshua and the rest of them. Moses then gives his two cents and now he gives his opinion. After seeing what the Lord has said, he gives his two cents. Frankly, in Christian counseling stuff, when you're dealing with somebody who's struggling, this is a great approach that Moses takes. Just a side note, doesn't matter what I think, here's what the Lord says about that and then you have permission to talk about maybe what you think. So for my two cents, here's what I think. And I just think it's a great pattern. Moses first repeats what the Lord has already said, and then he gives his opinion about that. Uh, and oftentimes people don't even want to hear what the Lord has said. They just want you to empathize. But 14, verse 14, and look, you've risen from your father's place, a brood of sinful men. Ouch to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness and you will destroy all of these people. If you do this now, we stand a chance of being out in this wilderness for another 40 years. And Moses is framing this really like cut and dry, black and white. We're not even talking about an issue of sin here. We're just talking about the, the heart itself is the sin. Right? no commandments are being broken when you want to feed your sheep. So this is a rebuke. This is what we would call a rebuke in the Bible. You have people who think they're right, and then the person who's in leadership says, you are wrong. And That's a rebuke. None of us like being rebuked ever. The worst rebukes are from people you love, and you feel like you've disappointed them, or you've hurt them, and this is a really difficult thing to do. So, they're not going to get punished or sent back to the wilderness. And I think it's because in part, there's different commentators that deal with this differently. First of all, they don't go into the Holy Land. That's bad. But how they respond to this and how they come back towards Moses a little bit is a really interesting thing. And God does not punish the nation a second time. So there's something about what they did here that's actually, God is okay with that. So again, this is a difficult chapter. Uh, Part of the rebuke, the the uh, anatomy of a rebuke. He calls them a brood of sinful men, which means they're hanging together like snakes and they're in sin, their hearts not following the Lord together. Now this could be a group of people at your church that just get together because all they want to talk about is their favorite barbecue sauce and they brood together and they don't have their hearts in the Lord, right? This is also a precursor to when Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Pharisees were church leaders or leaders of Israel, right? So this is in church kind of language that's getting used here, right? He says, you've turned away. Moses assumes that they have free will. They're not being forced to do anything and they have a total choice. He says, once again, you leave them in the wilderness. He's saying once again, because each generation is accountable. Our parents' holiness or our parents' sins do not reflect on our responsibility before the Lord. And Moses just assumes that and then fourth he says you will destroy all of these people oddly enough when we act in a certain way it has impact on the body of believers that we hang out with this is really tough this is how churches split this is where you get into tons of trouble is somebody in the church or a group of people in the church are doing something that hurts everybody and then you got to have that conversation with them saying look, you guys, you love picking your nose right in the middle of service, but it's distracting everybody, and your heart is clearly on your boogers, and you need to stop that. And then they get all mad. Who are you to tell me not to pick my nose? It's like, you know, I'm just, as a brother in Christ, I'm saying that's really distracting when you do that, and it hurts the body. And there's a thing called staph infection. So when you wipe it under the pews, You know, some of us got to sit there next week and it's just disgusting and it wrecks things. Can you just please stop? Not an issue of sin, right? But an issue of the heart and where their heart is at. And I'm doing a tug and cheek, but you can take the word boogers out and put in almost anything. And it's going to be something where then those people have a choice. Do they repent of their booger picking? Or do they move forward and say, you know what? I can stop doing that. I'll start using Kleenex. <laughs> you know, I'm willing to give something up of me. And, and there's a lot of things like this. Like most of you have your shoes off. Steph and I really don't care if you keep your shoes on or off, but most of you just take them off. And some of you even come the first time you come, you're like, do you want us to take our shoes off? And we're like, yeah, we don't care. But there's that idea that when you come into a body of people, you should kind of first look around and see what the norms are and try to respect them you know, so that you fit in. And that's not compromising fit in. That's just because you love and care about the people you're getting to know, right? So in middle school, as a middle school teacher, I had a very similar situation. It is not a sin for a 12-year-old boy to not wear deodorant. But it affects my classroom. (laughs) And that odor affects everyone. And at some point, as a teacher, you got to say, little dude, I got to stick a deodorant and it's got your name on it. And you just privately like, I'm going to hook you up. This is my favorite deodorant, the speed stick stuff, gel. Don't get the pasty stuff. This stuff rocks. It's all for you, man. And it's like, what? Are you saying I stink? Yes. <laughs> yes, my friend, you stink. And I wish it was that easy with spiritual and moral issues but it's not. We want to fight about our moral issues. And we want to argue about our moral issues. Well, I think this, and I think that. And it's like, well, but you're in a group of believers here. And what you're doing is discouraging the whole group when you do or say or act like this. It just makes it so none of us really want to engage with that. This is a horribly hard discussion. And that's why it gets at the end of numbers. It's like the rest of numbers has been easy so far. This one's tricky because there's no sin involved here. They just want to feed their sheep not a horrible thing. But what's horrible is God told them where they were going to settle, and then they're losing faith in that thing that God initially said. This is the Holy Land. I know I'm taking a lot of time with this, but it's a really tough idea. Take heed, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. 1 Corinthians 10, wherefore let him that thinketh that he stands and take heed lest he falls. If you have a brain that works, take heed to what God has planned for that body of people you're hanging out with. That fellowship that you have, your families, your friends, your bowling clubs. Do they have bowling clubs anymore? This is a stern warning because destruction's on the other end of it. If you come into that body and you're just doing your own thing all the time, you're destroying what God wants that body to be doing. Verse 16, then they came near to him, This is good. They came close to Moses, pulled him aside. We'll build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we've brought them to their place. And our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received their inheritance. For we will not inherit with them or the other side of the Jordan or beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on the eastern side of the Jordan. This is an interesting compromise. Okay, this is a tough one. You may have different opinions on how to break it down than I do, and that's cool. We can have that conversation. But I'm going to break it down this way. They came near to have a conversation with them, implies that there's a more intimate conversation. Or to clarify, there's a kind of repentance here. Moses, Moses, we didn't mean we wouldn't fight with you. We don't want to discourage the people of Israel. We'll still fight with you, but our hearts are going to stay back here with our kids. And we're going to make our home here, but we're going to go do everything we're supposed to do. Do you know people in the church that do everything that they're supposed to do, but their hearts are in the wrong spot? I mean, it does happen. And if you haven't seen it happen, just keep getting to know people. They're part of the promise and they'll still help with it. Verse 17, to go before. Now you start to see some things are weird. Who goes in front of the armies of God? God or Gad and Reuben? So their proclamation here is this highly enthusiastic thing. We'll go out in front. Moses never asked them to go in front, right? But they're kind of vowing. They're Right after they had this whole chapter on vows, now they're out here making this vow. Getting all the. It, it's almost like the vow chapter came first to prepare us for this chapter. Like, here's an example of people making these vows. So they're going to, if they're going out in front, then they get all the glory for all the battles of God. Oddly enough, people whose hearts have settled often take all the credit in in bodies of believers. And you can see that on the television. They're going to do everything and they're not going to really get the grace of God. Verse 18, it says, we will not return to our homes And they think this solves it. Well, they're going to fight side by side. And even better, they're going to be out in front. They're the holy champions. They're going to build a TV station. They're going to make the Christian bookstores. They're going to have the best-selling books. They're going to have the Christian music, Christian coffee mugs, and Christian t-shirt. That's these people. They're going to be out in front. They're going to do everything loud and clear. And their inheritance then has fallen to them over here. It's a simple but a deep lie that they tell at the end. They've they've convinced themselves that being a champion out in front excuses the fact that they're now going to lie about God's word. God said their inheritance was to the west, and they're saying their inheritance is to the east. So they're claiming an inheritance that God never gave them. And this is a really difficult thing when they don't want the inheritance they've got, and now they've convinced themselves this is really what God wants instead of what God actually gave them this is a tough chapter. It makes me uncomfortable even talk about it. You can win and be blameless, verse 22, but you're not really doing God's work in the end. And that's a difficult place to be, right? Or it's putting a lot of motion on the exercise bike, but you're going nowhere. And the harder you push then, the solution for some people is just go faster on the exercise bike. That's the solution. But all they're going to do is burn themselves out and fizzle and bring disgrace and discouragement to the kingdom of God right? These are the televangelists that fall into sin, right? They weren't doing anything wrong to start with, but the way they were going wasn't God's way. It's a really difficult piece. Then Moses said to them, if you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord, you see how Moses changed that? You don't go out before the Lord. You're going to arm yourselves before the Lord because he's going to go first for the war. And all you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterwards you may be blameless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. See what Moses just did there? He's, and this is, I've seen pastors do this, and I think this is really graceful of Moses. He's gently trying to correct the language and the thinking, right? Well, not too gently, right? Because he does it seven times, right? So he's, he's, really trying to frame it. Look, God comes first, not you, right? You come into a church and you have people that come and say, when are we going to do bingo night? Why don't we do bingo night? We must do bingo night. God wants us to do bingo night. And then a the pastor says, well, you know, maybe that's not what the Lord's called this church to do because we've been praying about it and we just feel no calling for a bingo night, but we need to do bingo night. We think the the bingo night should go out in front, and that's going to be what brings people into our church. And then pastors, eventually they relent a little bit and say, okay, if you want to do this thing, put God in front. Let God lead the bingo night. Devotions at the beginning of God. Put God before everything that you're doing, and give it a shot and see how this goes. All right, we're going to do it. And instead of hearing that message, like people don't even hear it. like It's none too subtle what Moses says back to them, right? but look at how they respond. But if you do not do so, then take note. Oh, I'm sorry. The response comes after this. First of all, the response is they're going to just embrace this. Yes, we're good. We'll do this. Um, Moses uses this idea that everything that's done is done vertically. It's all before the Lord. But what they're doing is they're still looking at the cows, right? And God's church is this kind of idea. When you gather with a body of people, even as small as our little Bible study. This is God's Bible study. He built it. He built it through each of you getting fed through the word of God and then telling other people about how you're getting fed through the word of God. That's how God does it. He did not do it because we had a great marketing strategy. And it was something to do with Steph's cooking. I know that. But the Lord blesses those kinds of things. And the Lord builds those things. It's all gods and it's all gods to start with. And then Moses comes up. And so the first thing is the before the Lord. The second part of Moses' statement is verse 23. But if you do not do so, if you don't keep your vow, then take note, you've sinned against the Lord and be sure that your sin will find you out. That's a phrase. Build cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep and do what has proceeded out of your mouth. He does not say do what the Lord has told you to do. Because people go off and run and do things saying the Lord's telling them to do things and the Lord's not. Because they're doing it outside of the kingdom. And they're running off on their own being mavericks. And Moses frames it the right way. You do whatever you think you need to do. But take note, you've sinned against the Lord and your sin will find you out. Um, There's this idea that we want to be blameless in the church. Uh, And when we accept that blamelessness, when we seek that in our life and we want that holiness, even when we settle for less, our hearts are still a place where we're serving the Lord. So we might not be doing as much, but our hearts are in the right place with God and God loves that. It's a sweet aroma to him. That devotion chapter, just do devotions and add tassels. When we do that little thing, in the end of the day, that is standing for God's word because that's what God has told us in His word to do. So we just do that. Sometimes standing for God's word means doing less because God's word says to do these things than it is to do more. You don't have to be the champions of anything to be loved by the Lord God Almighty. Just be blessed. And we've told a lot of people that when they're coming to, what can I do for Bible study? You don't have to do anything, just come and be blessed. And just come and enjoy. You're coming into our home for crying out loud. Just enjoy our hospitality and just be here. And that said, some people still add some things to that. And that's great because they're doing it from a place where, out of the love of their heart, they're like, boy, dickers really need this or that or the other thing. And you guys have been so awesome about doing that and providing it and helping with things. I'm still blessed by the time that Zach came by with the window treatments. Did you notice we put him on for the winter already? Because he was working at 3 m and he had a discount. And he's like, Dickers, they need these window treatments. And he just brought them. And it wasn't something like he's trying to achieve anything. He didn't want to get pointed out. He probably doesn't even want the credit right now. But it was such a blessing because it was like, yeah, it's chilly in here. And we got people in blankets every week. And we don't notice it, but it just needs to get done. And he just quietly and gently, out of the beauty of his heart, just... Did, took care of it and got it done. That's service to the body. And this kind of thing, this running off, I'm going to be the champion thing. And Moses is like, no, it's all in front of the Lord. It's, it's what God births in your heart that's holy and pure and wonderful. That matters more than any championship you could do. Don't pray out where everybody can see you. Pray at home in a closet and have that private relationship with God first. Or the woman who gives the mite, look at that woman, Jesus points out and says, look at that woman who just gave like a coin. But for her, that coin was everything. And then a rich person comes in and gives the same money. It's just, it's about the heart. It's not about how much you do or how much you give. So if you're going to do these things and then you don't do them, that's a sin against the Lord. That's going back to the vow chapter. If you vow something before the Lord and then you don't do it, that is sin. So don't say you're going to go out in front of the armies and then back out on it. not standing on God's word, and this is a contrast, is a sin and it's defined as a sin. God says to do something, we don't do it, that's a sin. And in doing that, we will be hated by all for my name's sake, this is Jesus talking, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Our sin finding us out, Moses actually personifies sin as a force of energy that moves on its own. And that's an odd framing in the Bible, but it's consistent with the rest of the Bible. It's just our first hint that there's an enemy out there that's actively trying to get at us. And Moses personifies sin in order to kind of say that. This is a promise. The sin of doing nothing is a serious sin, and it consumes us all the time in the church. It can be logical. It can look right at the beginning. It can sound really, really good, but at, at the bottom, it's foul right? Instead of being just a normal average person that's more foul, but everything that's done is done right or done fairly. So those people that are honest before the Lord don't have to be pretentious before people. You just can be yourself because you have nothing to prove to people. Verse 24, they say they're going to build cities. And Moses says, out of your mouth, So go all in. And I think this is another way that godly leaders take care of this kind of thing with people, is they tell people, good, if you're going to do that, don't do it halfway. Do it all the way. If you say you're going to build the cities and the sheepfold, then do it. Do everything you've said you're going to do. And then you can either see one of two things. Either I'm wrong and God's building something new over here, or I'm right and this is going to amount to nothing. But either way, I'm not going to take that job away from God. If you feel like you're called to build these little sheep pens, you go build those sheep pens and see what happens. And that's kind of what he says. Build these cities, what you're saying out of your mouth, because I haven't heard it from God. But if you think you are, I don't want to get in the way of that. Far be it for me to stand between somebody who feels like they're being called to do something for the Lord, but you're not doing it necessarily in the body of Israel. Does that make sense what he's doing there? I think it's a really interesting leadership. It's really consistent with God's character. God doesn't fight people from doing what they want to do. He lets them do it. And some of them come back to him with love and appreciation and adoration. And those are the people he's going to gather to himself at the end of days. Those people that just adore him. Verse 25. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spoke to Moses saying, this is their response. Your servant will do as my Lord commands. That's interesting, isn't it? Now they're just saying, well, Moses told us to do this. No, Moses is just relenting to what you already asked. But again, they're already in their own heads here. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, and all our livestock will be there in the cities of Gilead, but your servants will cross over every man armed for war before the Lord to do battle, just as my Lord says. So one way to look at this is that they're just pushing forward with their agenda Another way to look at it is that they just repented and gave Moses what he asked for, which is, I want you to fight with the rest of us. You don't get to go off and do that. So you can go off and do your little thing, but I want you to keep coming to church on Sundays. Right? And so there's two different ways to kind of frame that. Um, his The identity here has changed. They've now identified themselves as your servants. So they're not necessarily define, defining themselves as, as under God or God's children, but they are defining themselves as Moses' servants, because that's a small L Lord that's there. The direction has changed. This is good. This is repentance. They're going to cross over. So that's in there. And they're still thinking of their stuff. That hasn't changed a bit. Perhaps they've repented in their action or out of obedience, even if they disagree. And I think that's why God doesn't punish Israel this time around. At least they're complying even if their hearts aren't there, they're still going to do what God's told them to do. And I think that's okay. I think sometimes in the church when people are rebuked by, say, a pastor, or an elder, or a brother or sister in the face saying, you got to stop the nose picking. And people say, all right, I'll stop the nose picking. But then they get back to their car and they're rooting it out, right? The heart hasn't really changed. But at least when they come into the body, they're going to they're have a period of their life where they obey God's word. And that's a healthy place to start. God can work with that because they're learning how to obey at least over here. And then that can maybe spread to the rest of their life. Does that make sense? At least that's my take on it. Um, And again, my evidence for that is God doesn't punish Israel this time around. So something about this is okay, right? Even if Moses is pretty upset with them. So, but this is exactly what a lot of people do today. They love the world and they love Jesus and they want both. I want to do Jesus and I want to go out and do nightclubs, right? At the end of the day, don't they don't really enjoy the nightclub and they don't really enjoy Jesus. They don't really get either one because their hearts are in both places, but they're divided. And Matthew says, you can serve, you can, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or else you will hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and mammon. You can't do both. You can't go fighting in God's armies, but have your hearts back in Gilead. It just doesn't work. And God made us. He knows how we work. So they can be fighting, but they're hating that they have to fight. They can be side by side with people that have a zeal for the Lord, but their zeal is for their sheepfolds behind them. And they want to get back to their families. So that's another thought. Verse 17 says, our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities. And then verse 26 says, our little ones will be there. So they bookend their statement with talking about their kids. But at the end of the day, think of the irony here. They're going to abandon their children. Another danger for this kind of person. How many pastors do you know where their kids are rebels? This was like a known factor when I got into the principalship and I'd go to the principal conventions. They had sessions talking about this. You will devote all your time to the school and your kids will forget that they have a dad. Watch out for that. And they would coach principals to train for that. People in leadership, people that are on the bicycles going really fast in the ministry, missionaries will leave their kids behind sometimes. Well, that's not what God called them to do. So no matter what justification they have, I really struggle with that uh, that idea when you see people saying, I'm going to leave my kids behind. Well, your first response, you shouldn't have had the kids. Why did you do that? (laughs) If this is what God's called you to do, but those kids you have a responsibility to too. This is what's called pastor syndrome, right? Pastors where the kids grow up in the church and then they never get the attention of their parents. So they rebel and it happens all the time. You maybe have seen it. Lastly, (laughs) uh, this last kind of major story in numbers has this worldliness dividing Israel. Uh, there's the preparation, the renewed hearts, the zeal for God. And then there's still people that desire the world and what's left behind. So both these tribes, the end of the story, as you go forward, like past Deuteronomy, the end of the story is these two tribes fall into pagan worship very quickly. They eventually start to intermarry with the Moabites and Midianites. And at some point, they're totally conquered by the world, and the Assyrians destroy them completely. And as two tribes, they're they're decimated. And and so the moral of the story is what they do here isn't going to win for the kingdom of, of Israel at all. It's going to be a big loss. Verse 28. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua son of Nun, because Moses knows he's going to die, so he's giving this deal to those two and to the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And Moses said to them, if the children of Gad and the children of Reuben cross over the Jordan with you, every man armed for battle before the Lord. So he uses their language and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead as a possession. But if they do not cross over armed with you, they shall have uh, possessions among you in the land of Canaan. That's interesting. So it's not that they don't get any possessions, It's that they go back to what God promised them in the first place. So, trust but verify. Moses shares this for accountability. They've made a vow before the Lord, chapter 30, and now they have to keep it. So this really puts things back in God's hands. If they win battles or whatnot, then that'll be the case. If they don't, then it'll be the other way. So there's a possession that happens here. Moses swaps that word out. It says uh, God's promises use the word inheritance but notice how here they're going to only possess the land. They're not going to inherit it in Moses's words. Because you can sit in the church, but get nothing out of it. You can go decades sitting in churches, getting nothing out of it. You have to do something with your heart. It comes back to that tough heart work that every individual has to do. Verse 31, then the children of Gad and the children of Reuben answered saying, as the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. Now, instead of saying Moses has said something, now they're saying the Lord has said something. This is tricky. You see the progression here? And so we will do it. We will cross over armed before the Lord. So they're using Moses' language. They've come his direction on that. Into the land of Canaan, but the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us on this side of the Jordan. So they use the word inheritance where Moses never did. These little nuances, these conversations these Hebrews would have, where they're using these kinds of shifts in words, I think are really interesting. So now the vow is publicly spoken. It's spoken not just privately to Moses, but to the whole nation. Gad and Reuben reiterate verse 19. um, And now they think that their word is now God's word. Um, and, And at some point you're reading through this carefully and you just think, Gad and Reuben are just not hearing what Moses is trying to tell them. They're just not hearing it they're so gung-ho on their own will that they're just not getting that gentle thing that Moses has tried to give to them. So, verse 33, Moses gave to the children of Gad and the children of Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh, they just show up in this sentence, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sion, king of the Amorites, the kingdom of Og, the king of Bashan, and the land with its cities within borders, within the borders, the cities of the surrounding country, um, so this is going to be a doomed path for them. Uh, and there's going to be a list, list of cities. And I think this is almost prophetic <laughs> because you'd think these cities were just, you know, this is good livestock land, right? Little sheep cities. So you'd have Plainsville and, you know, nice gentle city names. Humble cities, right? These are humble sheep cities, but that's not the case. So Moses goes through this list of cities. And this time around, I'm going to tell you the Hebrew meaning of each of these. Because Moses is still not so gently trying to tell them that there's a problem here. Uh, and that there's a list of these cities. So these are not modest farm town city names at all. Uh, and the Hebrew words do have meaning. Remember, in the Hebrew it sounds like this. So when I say Plainsville in English, you think of a town on the plains, right? Because that word has meaning, even though it's a town name and it's a proper noun. Same thing with these. The children of Gad built Deban, which means wasting. And they made and Adaroth, which means crowns, and Aror, which means ruins. Adarath Shofan, the ruins of the rapine or a violent theft of places. This is an odd name to give a city. So either Moses is making up names for these cities and he's mocking them, or they named their cities really weird names, right? These aren't normal. You don't name your city crowns of violent theft. That's not what you name a city. But Moses is just calling it that, so you wonder if it's almost tongue-in-cheek. And jazer, which means helped, and jagabaha, which means lofty. 36, Beth Nimrah, the house of the leopard. Beth Haran, the house of the mounted lofty one. Fortified cities and folds for sheep. So you got this mix of lofty ruins and violence, this worldly powerful stuff that people think is such a big deal, but it's not that big of a deal. These are just sheep cities, right? But it gets, it goes on, it gets even more elaborate. And the children of Reuben, they built Heshbon, the stronghold. That's the name of this one. Why do they need a stronghold? This is a cleared land, but they call it the stronghold. Not just a stronghold, the stronghold. I, that's a great line from one of Tom Cruise's movies. And Eliella, the god ascending high, that's Eliella, and Kirith Tham, which means double city. It's not just a city. It's a double city, like the twin cities. It's a big deal. This is the city. You can't miss it. It's the best city in the world. It's a city that we are proud of, that we have built. And that's what happens with these kinds of people. They do really cool things sometimes, but they've built something awesome that God never wanted in the first place, right? The glass cathedral comes to mind. Verse 38, Nebo Which means the prophet Mercury, or later the word Nebo gets turned into people's names for the Babylonians, like Nebuchadnezzar, right? So Nebo or Nebo gets used in that way, but it has to do with uh, learning and academia. So the prophet Mercury was the prophet of kind of knowledge and learning. So Nebo would be academia, and Baal Meon, the god of habitation. This is a good place to stay. Hospitality. Here you go. This this and Kirithain in Ezekiel 25.9 are both listed or named as cities on the frontier, the glory of the country, Beth-Jeshmoth and Balmaon and Kirithaim. So again, as we get to the prophets later on, these cities are used as examples of prideful cities, cities that brag a little bit more than they should. Our cities are big and large is what's going on here. So Moses points out there, their names being changed, which makes me think he might be mocking them. And with those names in the Hebrew, you, maybe that's right, but he puts it right in there, their names being changed. Naming them after what God has named them after of is is just too much for these people. They don't give them new names here. They are Hebrew names, so they're not using old names. They're making up these new ones. And you wonder if this is the first step towards much larger ills. The first steps in this look awesome and amazing. Lofty, super high, double city, the stronghold, all these cities. Look at how big and awesome we are. Um, But at the the highest of heights for humanity is still awfully short for God. And it just doesn't step up. And Shibma, which means fragrance, later Shibma is known for its vines and its orchards. Uh, And they gave names to the other cities which they built and such there's more towns too. in other words, Moses just says, etc cetera, et cetera. How do we start to identify the difference between God blessing his people financially, real estate wise and whatever, and this idea that people push to get their own way and then they, and they seem to succeed in the world? They build double cities. And this is a tough place and for the Bible it just keeps coming back to the heart. So their lofty houses, their super renovations, their financial strongholds, their IRAs, their civic pride, their development projects. They even have a town called Academia, which I feel a little convicted by, the god of habitation. You can call it anything you want to, but it's all a very practical, innocent looking trap for humans to fall into. Is your home in those cities or is your home in the cities that we haven't named yet? The ones in the Holy Land because these cities sound awful good. I mean, they're double cities. Their habitation is where you live, your habitation, your place. And that's a danger for Christians that we put our self-worth, our identity, and our eyes on where we live, where our money is, how lofty we are or we aren't. I mean, pride, lust, and greed, the big three. And all these cities kind of capture that idea. Don't put your identification in those things, put it in God. And all those things will be added unto you. God will give you what he wants to give you. But you start by keeping your eyes on the Lord. And the children of Machar, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and took it, and they dispossessed the Ammonites who were in it. It does not give a moral judgment on this, but God did not command them to go beat up the Amorites. Remember, He asked them to go through or around the Amorites. So, this is the beginning of the end for Israel. They're disobeying God, and now they're attacking people they shouldn't have attacked because they weren't asked to do that. So, the cross of the camp, remember the camp's built in this cross. When you take two tribes off of one end of that cross, that just shortened one of the four wings considerably. So now we have a cross with the second census where those two arms on the side have leveled out. And now the top one is just chopped off. It looks a lot more like a Jesus cross at this point. So God's going to use this whole story to give us an example. His plan is still in the in the motion. So Moses gave Gilead to Macker, which means sold the son of Manasseh, which means a cause to forget, just they've sold out, they're forgettable. And he dwelt in it and Jair, once it means he enlightens, the son of Manasseh went to take the small towns and called them Havath Jair, villages of his enlightenment. And that his is not God, it's a human his, because it's not in all caps. Then Nobah, which means barking, went out and took Kenoth possession in its villages and called it Noba after his own name. These names are so descriptive of what's going on and what's happening here. We see Israel start on the wrong foot. They're the first ones that leave and they're going to be the first ones to fall. I want to give you a little comprom- uh, uh, like a, a little context on this. The Moabites actually have ancient records that we can look at here too. So if we flipped from the Bible over to the Moabite records on the Mesha steel, or or in English more like the Moabite Stone. Uh, There's actually a reference to this fall of Israel, which is kind of interesting. In 850 BC, Chemosh tells of how he assaulted the Israelites. And this is what he says. And you can see connections right to the word of God. And I love this stuff. The men of Gad lived in the land of Adaroth from ancient times. And the king of Israel built Adaroth for himself. And I fought against the city and I captured and I killed all the people from the city as a sacrifice for Chemosh, the god of Moab. This is the end result of these cities that they built for themselves. And it's interesting that the Moabites even point out that the Israelites built these cities. So just like the Bible does. And Chemosh said to me, because Chemosh talks to the Moabite people too. Chemosh is a god of destruction. Go and take Nebo from Israel. And I went in the night and I fought against it from the break of dawn until noon. And I took it and I killed its whole population. 7,000 male citizens and aliens, female citizens and aliens, and servant girls fried, put to the ban, uh, the Ashtar Chemosh, and from there I took the vessels of Yahweh and I hauled them before the face of Chemosh. So, all this talk about before the Lord, before the Lord, before the Lord, at the end of the day, all the stuff that was supposed to be before the Lord gets taken before Chemosh. And we don't even hear that result from the Bible, we hear it from the Moabite stone. Isn't that sad? This is what was supposed to be so awesome where their kids could live free and happy on the grassy plains, running about with their sheep. And at the end of the day, it's total destruction is what happens at the end. That's the rest of the story. Those not in the fellowship may think they can know more or that they're more lofty. But at the end of the day, the enemy just looks at that and says, yummy, those are tasty sheep and I'm going to destroy them. When you put yourself out of that mix, you just leave yourself hanging. So what do we do? At the end of the day, Moses lets them fail. Because what are you going to do when somebody says, I got to do this and I got to do this and I got to do that? At some point, you just say, okay, give it a try. See how it goes. And you pray for them because you're kind of sad because they're missing out on all the awesome stuff. I know this is a tough message tonight, but it's a tough chapter. Moses basically says, go ahead and do whatever your will thinks is going to work and see how that goes for you. And I'm here when you're done, and that's the graceful part. When you're ready to come back into the fold, come on back. Here you go. This is where we're gonna we're gonna just keep leaning on God's word, fellowshipping, praying together, eating good food. There's holidays, festivals, and there's tassels. So you try to build your own cities, and when they fail, come on back into the kingdom. Notice how the Moabites, zone said there were aliens in with them. That's because they're intermarrying and all that sort of thing. But um, there's there's that idea that there should be a refuge that we go to. And and even these aliens didn't have a refuge when that happens. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, that you may be received into an everlasting home. He was faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. This is Jesus. And he was unjust in what is least is also unjust in as much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon living for the world, who will, com- who will you commit your trust to for the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what another, what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and mammon. In the full context of that, you start to see that Jesus was dealing with the exact same issue as that what's going on over here. We're not going to fight you over this stuff. It's not about sin. Nobody's in sin when they decide, I want to go do this and I want to go do that. But the heart gets distracted. It's an absolute and present danger for godly people. It's right where the enemy attacks. If he can't get you to complain, gripe, argue, rebel, then he's going to get you to do that. He's going to get you to just settle for less. Settle for just safety and security and peace and sheep folds. And just, I'm just going to live my life and do my thing and never step out for the Lord. Stuff world, identity, will. Set your will on God, your identity in Christ, your eyes on the Holy Spirit, and you forsake the stuff of this world. And that's the equation. And it's way back here in the book of Numbers. It's also in the New Testament, Matthew 6.33. I've already kind of quoted this one. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added into you. And that's not saying you're going to get a brand new Corvette. That's saying that spiritually speaking, the wealth of what God has to offer comes when you seek the kingdom first. It takes precedence over anything else in your life versus the practical trap of innocuous mammon. Amen. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, this is such a tough chapter, Lord, and it's one that uh, our hearts can rebel against and can struggle with. Uh, but Lord, ultimately, we each have to find this line for ourselves. And Lord, I pray that you give each person in this room that kind of wisdom. Lord, as we pray through our lives, we have to have a place to live. We have to have jobs. We have to have a place to, to raise children. Uh, Lord, we have to do these things. This is just part of life. Uh, it's very practical. And, and it's also in itself, Lord, can be a trap where we set our eyes on it. We fixate our hearts on it, Lord. And we forget that you have so much more for us. Uh, Lord, help us to have wisdom in that. Uh, it's going to look different for each person in this room, Lord. And I think that's why it's ambiguous in the word. Uh, is that you've called each of us for different things. You've given us each an inheritance that looks slightly different. Uh, Lord, you've given us different spiritual gifts, different spiritual callings. You've moved our heart in different places. But Lord, help us to never neglect what you've put on our heart spiritually. Uh, That we serve you first before we serve anything else in this world. Lord, help us to forsake everything for you just like you did for us. Uh, That's our reasonable service. Uh, Lord, uh, you you would uh, take care of a bird, uh, even to the point where you you know every hair on our heads, Lord, you have such intimate and compassionate care for us. Um, And you'd point us to the flowers that are beautifully adorned, Lord, but they don't seek out the next promotion, uh, that you will adorn and you will feed your servants, Lord, and you will take care of us and we will have what we need each day. Uh, Lord, that doesn't say that you won't give us trials, but those trials help us to keep our eyes on you. So Lord, teach us, mold us, shape us, and help us to just have joy, Lord, that you have provided a path, uh, that you have made it so that we can repent. Uh, You have given us that open door whenever we want to come back to you like a prodigal son, uh, off doing their own thing, but eventually coming back home to you. So Lord, help our hearts to come home to you, to know you, and to keep you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.